0: Let's begin with this question. How do California politics impact your life as a Christian? I imagine that many of you participated in an election over the last week. I imagine that some of you have strong opinions about some, at least some of the issues that were um, kind of in play in the election this last week. And depending on your opinions, your convictions, your perspectives, your um, your perception of the correct strategy. You may be feeling relief as a result of the election. You may be feeling sadness or anger or anxiety as a result of the election. And depending on those um, feelings and how intense they are, you're um, either in need today for some encouragement or, or you're just ready to celebrate. I'm not sure. There's probably a variety of responses um, around us here. But broadly speaking, what we're experiencing in California today is what Christians experienced in Philippi in the first century and, frankly, what Christians have experienced virtually everywhere throughout history, most of the world. The challenge of navigating life as a people who embrace Jesus as Lord, as King, as Master in cultures that don't embrace Jesus as Lord, as King, and as Master. What does it look like, in other words, to live as a Christian in a non-Christian culture? What does that look like? You know that's a critical question. You know that question gets at the core of something important when you begin to discover that the church has answered that question in a variety of ways throughout the history of church. In other words, all Christians share the belief that we should live in the world and follow Jesus in the world, but we often disagree about how to best do that, which reveals that the issue can be pretty complicated, or at a minimum, people who love Jesus can embrace a variety of strategies toward that end. This has always been the case. For instance, Jesus was born into a Jewish culture as a Jewish man, and that culture was asking, what does it look like to live as a follower of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, within the Roman um, Empire, which actively oppresses Jewish people? How do you live as a faithful Jew in a culture that's actively oppressing Jewish people. And there were different answers to that question within the Jewish community. And you've heard of some of these groups. The Pharisees believed they should um, embrace um, uh, such purity that they were able to sort of rise above and live a kind of a superior life to the surrounding culture. The Sadducees kind of, if you can't beat them, join them kind of attitude. They embraced the culture. They tried to work within the Roman structures with the Roman authorities. There was a group called the Essenes, like John the Baptist. They were off the grid. They just said, let's just get out of culture. Let's separate ourselves from culture. And then there were another, there's another group. Even one of Jesus' disciples was a part of this group. It's called the Fourth Philosophy, also called the Zealots, which believed that the only remaining option for faithful Jews in an in a empire that oppressed Jews was violence, was a violent response to the government. So should the church oppose the culture on moral grounds? Should the church work really hard to be relevant to the culture, speak the same language? Should the church withdraw from culture? Kind of like maybe Mennonites. Should the church go to war against culture? What's the right relationship? Is it above culture? Is it embracing culture being with culture? Kind of baptizing the culture? Is it avoiding culture? Or is it fighting against culture? Christians hold different views. We don't all agree on how to live as Christians in a non-Christian culture. By the way, since I brought it up, our perspective, our conviction here at Emmaus is that we should engage culture with a compelling alternative to culture's values. We should engage culture, not withdraw. We should engage culture, but we should do so with a compelling alternative to the values of the dominant culture. How do you do that? We think that's the reaction or the response that most faithfully represents the life and teachings of Jesus. How do you do that? Creatively, creatively. I mean, it takes real creativity to be able to stay in culture, in the world, but engage and engage the world, but with a perspective and a set of values that is, that is an alternative to the core and is actually compelling at the same time. When I'm tired, friends, I can feel drawn to the separate from culture perspective. I wanna just go start a commune in Montana. Does anybody wanna join me? Okay, a couple of you, we can do it. We'll grow squash together or something. When I'm frustrated, I can resonate with the fourth philosophy. I wanna fight against culture. I don't mean violently, but I mean, I wanna oppose it as loudly as I can. Uh, Ultimately, what I'm trying to do uh, this morning is set the table with the real-life reality that following Jesus takes place in the world. (laughs) That's the only place we can do it. Here, following Jesus takes place in specific cultures with real people in positions of actual power and influence, and the norm, at least in the Bible, is that those in power are opposed to Jesus and his followers. And I recognize that the opposition that most of us face in this culture at this time is relatively light in comparison to other parts of the world and other parts of history. And yet there is opposition that we face. We're in a new series. It's called Anxiety and Joy. We're reading through the Apostle Paul's most encouraging letter. It's called Philippians. It's all about joy. It's a letter to real people who are living in a real culture with actual political power, structures, and societal influences. So of course the letter isn't about joy experienced in a vacuum. That doesn't exist. The letter is written to real people about real joy in the midst of real challenges that surround us. Paul's writing in the context of opposition to the gospel, and he's writing to people who are anxious about serving Jesus in their culture. And no one, especially Paul, is trying to downplay the fact that to be a Christian in a highly patriotic Roman colony like Philippi is to go against the cultural norm and to go against the cultural current. A little bit about Philippi, uh, a couple of generations before Paul's writing this, Philippi is named for the father of Alexander the Great. Now, at this time, it has basically become, at the time of Paul's writing, it's basically become like a sun city for retired Roman generals, right? It's like it's where they go to kind of be an active member of the community um, of of Romans. And so Philippi is like thoroughly Roman. Philippi is flag-waving, chest-thumping Roman. People had skin in the game. They did well. And now they're retired in this place. It's called a colony of Rome and it's in Europe, it's not in Rome, Um, and so there, it's like a holdout, It's it's like a, it's like a, it's a colony, and the Romans honored the Greek gods, but Paul honored one God, the one true God, the God of the Hebrews, right? The Romans viewed the emperor as Lord, listen to these phrases, viewed the emperor as the son of God, viewed the emperor as the savior of the world, and the words of the emperor were called the evangelion, which is gospel, Paul appropriates these familiar Roman phrases and says, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Savior of the world, and the gospel is not that Caesar has come to your town, it's that Jesus has. Where does this message lead Paul? To a Roman jail, as you might expect. Yeah, Where you think he would be dealing with crippling anxiety, and yet he writes this letter about sustaining joy. So we started last week with Paul's greeting, his primary reason for joy, and his opening prayer. Today we'll jump into the second half of chapter one of Philippians, starting in verse 12. Philippians chapter one, starting with verse 12. Paul writes Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And just to be clear, what has happened to him? He's been imprisoned. That's, what's ha- that's what he's referring to. <clears throat> Verse 13. As a result, Paul writes, it's, been, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. The word that jumped off the page to me last week from this section was the word most. Did you catch that? He says in verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. What does that mean? It means that Paul's arrest has caused most Christians to become more confident, less afraid, but not all of them. Some of them... It seems hearing that Paul is now in chains have become less confident and more afraid. It's a smaller group. It's a minority, but there are some. I'm pointing this out to show that Christians are responding to the same events in different ways. Some see this happen to Paul, and they're like, bring it. And they get bold, and they get loud, and they get more confident, and they face opposition with less fear. And others see the very same thing and they feel afraid. It's a real life situation. It's not a fairy tale. It's life. And so it's a battle because life is a battle. And then Paul mentions others who are seizing upon his arrest as an opportunity for their own advancement. In other words, there's a third group. Most who hear that Paul is arrested, they become emboldened to live for Christ. Some who hear of Paul's arrest, they shrink back in fear. And then a third group hear of Paul's arrest, and they use it as an opportunity to promote their own agendas. It's real life. It's complicated. And Paul acknowledges this. He's not trying to to ignore the variety of responses to what is happening to him. Look at verse 15. He says, it's true. Some who preach Christ... So Paul acknowledges the range of responses to his imprisonment, boldness, fear, and envy. But the bottom line for Paul is this, Christ is preached. And for that reason, Paul rejoices. There must have been a debate among the Christians about the variety of responses to Paul's arrest. I can imagine Facebook was a mess, with the most outspoken of the bold, shaming those who were a little more cautious, calling them afraid, those who were afraid, saying, we're actually not afraid, we're just trying not to be killed, trying to save our lives here. And then there's the people who are preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry against Paul, and they're just trying to stir up a mess between everybody, trying to cause the whole church to be in conflict with one another. I wonder if anyone left the church because of Paul's arrest. I wonder if anyone became so discouraged with the way Christians were responding differently to the same thing that they just, they kind of like lost their faith in God. Because what has characterized the early Christian church for much of its history thus far is unity. And here Paul is acknowledging a real lack of unity, even around something that, man, I would think they would kind of be unified about. He clearly has a response that he sees as the most favorable in this situation. But what I'm trying to point out, at least at this point, is the dynamic that he is dealing with a variety of responses to the same event. I don't know if anyone left the church or left the faith as a result of Paul's arrest, but what we do know is that through it all, Paul is rejoicing. <laughs> He's rejoicing. He goes on saying, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage. So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in this body, it will mean fruitful labor for me. What, yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Let me just wrap up this section. Whatever happens, he says, verse 27. There's something there, and I, I don't have time to go into it today, but there's something there. I gotta, I gotta, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. All right. Three big thoughts this morning about this passage quickly here. First, perhaps the most important paradigm shift that you and I need to make in our thinking in order for our thinking to be converted to Christian thinking is shifting from thinking of joy as something that can exist outside or after suffering to something that can exist in suffering. Do you follow me? We need to shift from thinking of joy as what comes after the pain stops and be able to embrace and ask for the grace to experience an actually a Christian perspective on joy, which is that it is possible to experience joy in the midst of the troubling situation. It's easy to think when anxiety is over, I'll experience joy. When suffering is done, joy will be possible. And we might even expect Paul to write, once I get out of jail, I'm going to be joyful again. But that's not what he says. Paul is professing joy in the midst of an anxious, worrisome, fearful, maybe even panicky situation. Is he going to be released from jail? Maybe. Is he going to be executed? Possible. Eventually he is. And Paul is not just professing joy in the midst of his persecution and his prison, but here's the thing, guys. He is inviting others to press into and to find joy in the midst of their suffering. He is inviting us to press into our suffering to find joy. And that sounds risky, doesn't it? Accepting Paul's invitation to find joy in the midst of our suffering, our trouble, our worrisome situations, that's risky. It's relatively easy to say, when the pain stops, you'll feel better. right? When the cancer goes away, you'll be happy again. When the conflict in the family is over, then you'll, you'll be full of joy. Of course you will. We don't, I don't need you to tell me that. I don't need joy after pain. It just comes naturally. What I need is joy in the midst of pain. And that's what Paul is proclaiming is possible. Joy in the midst of suffering. But believing that he's right is risky. Pressing into joy, even as the challenging situation remains challenging, that's risky. That's risky. Holding out for real joy, it requires what we call faith. Pressing into real joy, not being satisfied with these shallow circumstantial counterfeits, it requires that we trust that what Paul's saying is true and that joy is possible in that pain. I can, I can go into that pain, I can go into that suffering, I don't have to run away from it. Because joy is possible to be experienced in there. Friends, it's much easier to lower your expectations. It is. Sadly, I see it all the time and I battle it within myself. It is easier to lower your expectations and decide this is probably as good as it's going to get for me. And then to try to force your soul to be satisfied with what is in fact a disappointment. And that's what crushes souls. That's what makes people jaded. That is the the definition of dissatisfaction. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased, he says. We are far too easily pleased. Last week, as we began this letter about joy, we read Paul connecting joy to some surprising things. Connecting joy to being a servant or a slave of Christ. In other words, belonging entirely to Christ. Connecting joy to being a saint in Christ. In other words, being totally devoted to Christ. Connecting joy to long-term partnership. And connecting joy to suffering. It struck me that Paul's inviting people to experience the joy of the Lord actually requires a stiff dose of courage. Why courage? Because the joy he's talking about, the gladness, the cheerfulness of heart is something that he's asking us to experience or to be willing to experience in the midst of suffering. It's a joy. It's a gladness. It's a cheerfulness that sustains a person in the face of adversity, in the midst of pain. Essentially, Paul knows that his imprisonment is serving as a foreshadowing to the rest of the Christians. In other words, he has entered the storm and it's only, it's only uh, natural for other Christians to think, wow, if that's what's happening to our leader, that might be what's next for me. We also may be joining him in prison soon. Maybe we're next to enter that storm. And so what do you feel like doing when you th- think that the storm's coming and you sk- You cut and run, right? That's what's natural. You cut and run. You go the other way. But Paul is clearly saying that he is experiencing a profound joy in the midst of the storm. Facing the storm as it comes is risky. Entering the storm Believing there's sustaining joy in the midst of the storm, that takes courage. Paul isn't saying you have to experience pain to know joy. He's not saying that. But he is saying that there's a joy that endures through suffering that is possible to experience. And the reason that that may require courage is because most of us, most of the time, we just want to avoid the the pain altogether. We just want to leave it. We want to run. And the reason it's so important that you don't make that a pattern is because there's some pain that you can't avoid, right? You can avoid a lot of things, but there's some things it's like, boom, here's the diagnosis. There's nothing you can do to avoid that. So you've either learned to face pain or you haven't. Whether or not you have, now's the opportunity. You can try to deny that this is the reality, this painful suffering is your reality, or you can embrace it and even do so hopefully because we're, we're being told here by the Apostle Paul that there's joy in the midst of that suffering. And it's not like some silly happiness. Paul is talking about a joy that causes a man to worship in jail at midnight. Joy that causes a man to worship in jail at midnight. I want to experience joy like that. I know that I will continue to need a joy like that. But remember this: why was Paul in jail in the first place? Let's not don't let this get so spiritual that it's like doesn't make sense to you anymore. He's in jail in the first place because he was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus in Philippi in word and in action, and he actually disrupted a culturally acceptable form of human trafficking, and he freed a girl, physically and spiritually, from oppression. Okay? He's in jail because of the gospel he was preaching and that it affected or, or confronted an economic system that was based on an acceptable way of enslaving people. And that's just one example, but that's the original reason he was imprisoned in Philippi or after Philippi. Paul's in jail because he engaged culture with a compelling alternative to the values of that culture. He could have just ignored it, friends, right? He could have just kept on walking. But he saw the storm coming, and he entered it. And then in the midst of the storm, he experiences real joy, and now he's professing that he's experiencing it. And so those reading his letter, the Christians in Philippi and the Christians in California can either take the risk, courageously enter the storm, experience joy in the midst of the suffering, or we might just work really hard to avoid challenging situations, try to be satisfied with lesser pleasures, like a kid playing in the mud in an alley, saying no to the offer of a holiday at sea. All right, so the first thought is in the midst. Paul is talking about a joy that takes place in the midst of suffering, not after suffering is over. Next two thoughts are are more quick. First thought, in the midst. Second thought, in the body. In the body. Paul is talking about a joy that takes place in the body. He writes, I eagerly expect and hope that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. In verse 21, He talks about the fruitful labor he will experience in his body. In verse 24, he talks about remaining in the body as being a great value to others. I simply want to draw our attention to the physical nature of partnership with Jesus. Like the bodily reality of living as a Christian. Living as a Christian in culture, it takes a body. It requires a body. It can be easy for us to think about Christian faith in spiritual terms. It's theology. It's, it's spirituality. It's convictions and knowing. But the body matters, and the body matters a lot. In all aspects of following Jesus, the body matter, matters, including this conversation about anxiety and joy. The body matters. We typically think of happiness and sadness, which are shallower, um, as physical expressions. I was in Santa Barbara on Saturday watching, not yesterday, but a week ago watching my son play uh, football, and uh, about as entertaining as the game was this guy about 10 rows down from me who was experiencing the game physically like almost nobody I had ever seen. The joys and the sorrows of the, he was with the other team. The, the stadium at Santa Barbara City College is stadium on one side, just one um, seats on one side, and then there's the ocean on the other. Consequently, you're intermingled with people from your school and the other school. So this guy's with the other school. And the game's going back and forth. And I'm telling you, you didn't even have to watch the game. You just watched this guy and and learn if what was happening he was happy about or sad about. And then it came down to the wire. Santa Barbara wins in the final four seconds. And his happiness and joy, they like escalate to Agony and ecstasy. I mean, he is like, uh, something good happens, and he's moving like five or six steps, and he's high-fiving. He's covering massive real estate. Something bad happens, and oh, he's just devastated. He's laying on the ground. It was hilarious. It's part of what's fun about watching sports, is you can actually feel it in your body, and then you can walk away, because most people know it's just a game, right? Right? Anxiety and joy are similar, but they're so much deeper, right? They're so much deeper. And just as anxiety is often experienced physically, like a tightened chest, sick stomach, sweaty palms, joy is experienced physically too. It's easy to imagine being physically threatened and experiencing physical anxiety, isn't it? Paul's in prison, ankles chained, wrists chained. This is happening physically, This is probably evoking some sort of fight or flight response, but Paul's experiencing joy in the midst of it. I wonder if we could imagine being physically threatened, but experiencing joy in our body. Not some weird sadistic son of happiness thing, but a deep sustaining peace, a pervasive confidence, Joy that rises above the situation and the circumstance but also is in the body in the midst of those very situations and very same circumstances. Can you imagine what joy might feel like in your body? What does joy feel like in your body? First thought, friends, In the midst, Paul is professing a joy in the midst of trials. Second thought, in the body. Don't over-spiritualize this. Paul's experience of suffering is not just emotional suffering. It's not just spiritual suffering. Similarly, Paul's experience of joy is not just spiritual. It's not just emotional. It's physical. He is participating in the gospel of Jesus Christ physically in his body. And here's the final thought, with courage. With courage. Paul is talking about joy in the midst, in the body with courage. Let's look back for a quick second to verse 18. I alluded to this already. Paul says, Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage. Isn't that interesting? I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. So I I spoke about this a minute ago, this experiencing joy in the midst of the storms of life, in the middle of the suffering, anxious situations. It requires that we don't run away. There's a part in your note, part in your notes, don't blank, don't run away. But the invitation is to enter into the suffering, there's a risk there which requires courage. My final question, how much courage is required? Paul's answer, sufficient courage. Right. Not perfect courage, not superhero-like courage, not unflinching courage, not nerves of steel movie poster courage. Courage enough, friends. Courage enough. Courage enough to not run even though you feel like running. Courage enough to believe the truth even though you're anxious. Courage to face the storm even though you're afraid. Courage enough to risk even though you're not 100% sure it's going to work out. Courage enough to see the broken situations... And the overwhelming circumstances, and not pretend that you're not seeing them, but look above them to the source of your joy. Paul says, verse 19 and 20, and here I'll paraphrase to try to make it as sort of street level as possible. Because of your prayers, this is how he says it. Because of your prayers, because of the Holy Spirit, I'm pretty confident. I hope I won't falter, but that I'll have enough courage that whatever happens, Christ will be glorified in my body. Friends, may God give us courage enough to face the storms that come. May we know joy in our bodies in the midst of those storms. Amen?